This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a studio audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed host for the night was Tina S. Maker. Enjoy the show. Our first guest is co-founder of a new support therapy app called Huddle, a community-based platform that aims to give people struggling with mental health issues a space to share, learn, and support one another. Since 2006, he has worked with companies such as Tumblr, Mother, VSA Partners, and most recently, he was the creative director for the Swedish e-commerce platform Ticktail. He has received awards from major design publications, including the Art Directors Club Young Guns Award, How Magazine's Eight Creatives to Watch, and Print Magazine's New Visual Artist. A graduate of Ringling College of Art and Design, he currently teaches at School of Visual Arts. Please give a very warm welcome to Dan Blackman. That was quite an intro. You have to live up to that. Are you yeah, ready? Yeah, I I'm really nervous. I think you can do it because you, you did all the things I said you did. I did. I, I have done everything correct so far. Um, I'm here, so. You're here. Yeah. And this is actually the first time we've met. Well, actually not not <clears throat> met, but had a conversation. Yes, It was it like is. a, like a, oh, I recognize that guy. We get briefly introduced. But this is a real conversation that we're having. I think, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it is real. We are really here. We yeah. are really here. So it's great to have you, and I'm really excited to learn more about you. Unfortunately, tonight I get to ask you all the questions, but you can ask me some after the show. That sounds if good. If you'd like. Um, so I want to start with you where I like to start with everyone, which is tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how your childhood influenced your ideas about creativity. Oh, wow. We're just going to dive right in. Okay. Um, well, I'm from a very small town in uh, northwestern PA, um, really uh, like in the middle of the Rust Belt, uh, 10,000 people, middle of the woods kind of scenario. Uh, I grew up, I was a terrible student. I was really bad, lots of ADD issues, uh, just never really, I could get along socially in class, but I just could never really um, pay attention. So I think art for me early on was something that I gravitated towards and I was lucky enough to have a have parents that supported me in that. and. Um, could look past uh, the D's and let me kind of like blossom into that. So in high school, I think like especially towards the end of high school, I think the majority of my classes were consumed with just art and doing, you know, my junior and senior year, my first three or four periods a day were just like AP art classes. So um, for me, it was a good time to be able to like, you know, I could get away with a lot more having the same teacher for four periods in a row. But uh, yeah, I think it started early with like photography and um, just trying things and let my parents letting me, you know, go for it. So I was really lucky. Um, so when did you, because art and design are, are very different. I don't know if design was something that was taught at your school or that you even had an idea existed. So when did, when did design get on your radar? Yeah, uh, so I mean... I've gone through a lot of phases, I think, in my life, and I've gone through, um, yeah, whatever. I've gone through a lot of different, like, phases, and in college, after high school, I actually went to school for um, environmental biology, because um, I, I wanted to be a forest ranger. And that lasted, uh, that lasted about a semester, uh, because I was taking, like, calculus classes and, you know, grown-up courses, and I was 
not prepared for that mentally. Um, so I, re I actually applied on, off the whim to RISD and I applied to this school that I've never really heard of called Ringling College of Art and Design. And that was down in Sarasota. And being my 18-year-old self and just wanting to get the hell away from Pennsylvania, uh, I went to, to Ringling. Um, but I went to Ringling to be a wildlife photographer. Uh, so uh, that didn't pan out. And uh, I, I found design because it was kind of like a mix where I could do photo and I started learning about type and I could do mixed media kind of stuff. So um, yeah, that's like I found design by accident, honestly. And thank God I found design because I have no fucking clue what I'd be doing um, if I didn't find design. Or it found you. Yeah, maybe design found me. It was like, Dan, wildlife photography? No, come yeah, over here. Yeah, I think all come of my teachers here. were very, like, oh, I don't know <laughs> what you're going to do with that. but um, yeah. Was there, so so design was a thing, you know, you discovered that it was a thing when you were in college, and did was it an aha moment, like, immediately you said, this is the path I'm going to go down? Yeah, absolutely. I think once I found design, um, it was definitely, uh, for me, it was like the, the one career that I could be creative in, but I could also be like um, aspirational in the sense that I could start a business. I could do something um, myself. And I, I mean, you can do that with photography and fine arts, but I think like I've always had like a drive to want to start a business. And I think early on I realized that, you know, starting, being able to do branding and being able to kind of think about a, a company or a concept through and through um, that I could actually, you know, hopefully do that myself one day. And I kind of saw that early on with, with design. That's awesome. So tell me, take me through the timeline uh, after college. Like, what, what were your first few years out of college like? Yeah. How were you making money? We all, these are the things we want to know, like the dirty <laughs> secrets that we want to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I went to, my first job was at VSA Partners in Chicago. Um, 2007 so I was laid off pretty quickly with the recession uh, which I you know seemed to be like a theme in my life uh, but every time something like that has happened it's it's actually been like super it's been great it's turned out for the best uh, but I worked at VSA partners I was mostly working on Caterpillar which is a heavy um, construction equipment uh, company in Illinois uh, so I was weird and then I worked on um, IBM as well and then after that, I went to Philadelphia, and I switched over to more of like an advertising focus and did like mostly like Nike tennis work at a place called 160 over 90. And I did that for about two and a half years or so, and then uh, took like a hiatus, did some stuff for myself, tried freelancing, um, and uh, that was awesome. I mean, like getting to do my own thing for the first time really gave me confidence that I could find clients. Like, and, and the way I did it was I just did a, a shitload of work for free. I mean, I, I reached out to like motorcycle companies and restaurants and brands that I wanted to do work for. And being naive and just like wanting to do work, I, um, it's, uh, it's, I, I guess it's really sexy for someone that's starting a business and there's someone willing to do work for them for free that I, I got a lot of work and that work ultimately led to starting to get awards. But uh, yeah, New York, uh, worked at Mother New York moved up here in 2012 or 13, uh, 2012, I guess, and worked there for a bit, got laid off. Um, that was a massive blessing. Uh, no offense to anyone. You know, mother's great. It just wasn't for me. Um, then uh, worked at Studio Mates for myself for a bit. 
went on to tech to Tumblr and then Ticktail and now I'm doing my own thing. So yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your own thing in a minute. Um, first, I want to talk about something else that you're currently doing, which is teaching, right? Yeah, well, not now. You're not uh, teaching I was now. teaching. That was the one thing that should have been line item. There's a few student, ex- old students here tonight, oh. which is pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, I taught at SVA for uh, three years, and uh, I just stopped teaching. So I've so, taken off from that just yeah. for the time Te- being. Teaching is a lot... It, it, it requires a lot. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, that's like a, that's a oversimplistic v- version of yeah, what it actually is. Um, but what did you... So you taught for three years, which is a pretty significant amount yeah. of time. What did you um, learn through teaching, and how did that enrich your actual design practice? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, it was good timing to start teaching because I think that's like when I started getting uh, real responsibilities. I uh, started like managing teams and... Being able to hold critiques and try to keep like 30 students' attention on any given day and get them to like all think in the same path, um, I think there's a lot of good teachings there uh, that helped me a lot with like managing over at Tumblr and um, then transitioning over at Ticktail. So I think like overall super positive experience. I mean, of course, there's like really shitty days where I'm just like, why are you guys? You guys clearly don't want to be designers. Um, but for the most part, it was like, you know, it was really good. Uh, so, yeah, patience, I guess, is what I learned um, at SVA. <laughs> That's uh, an important lesson. Yeah. So you're not teaching anymore, and no. you are, you're focusing on this new endeavor that you uh, recently announced. And so, yeah, let's talk about that. It was, let's see, the beginning of, or mid-August, you launched High Huddle, which you co-founded with Tyler Bo, yeah. just yeah. like it looks. Yep. Um, So the app is a peer-to-peer social platform that gives people a safe space to talk about mental health issues. Yeah. So give us an overview of the app and how it's used and specifically talk about this option for anonymity because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, so Tyler Foe, who's here, uh, him and I started this. We both worked at Ticktail and um, it's kind of like a natural transition. I think like we both had a lot of feelings for the space and I think that fundamentally um, I have like a lot of personal reasons like why I wanted to work on a project like this but I think like you know clearly there's like there's it's it seems like mental therapy right now or, or access to therapy seems to be broken for a lot of people anyways and um, by by no means do we think that we're going to solve everything, but I think the idea of creating a platform where, we, where people can open up and learn off of each other um, is a really great first step for either admitting or learning from someone out how to get actual help for a problem that they're working with. Um, so that's kind of like how we started, and I'm sorry, if, I'm not sure what the, the rest Yeah, of. I was... Um so you answered the first part of the question. The second part was, can you talk about the option for anonymity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like, you know, really just from like us talking to like groups of people and going out there and asking questions and uh, getting understanding for how people are coping with stuff. I think like the main hurdle is stigma. And I think, you know, uh, like one of the big things for me was like my dad dealt with that and, um, people create a, a lot of roadblocks for getting help and, I think that if you can add a layer of anonymity and you can say, hey, this is like a safe place and a brand that has a mission and all the people here are talking about the same thing. It's not like a platform like the social spaces that we're all addicted to right now that you go on and you're surrounded by 10 million subgroups, you know, that can, 
easily grab a piece of content and then show it to their subgroup and bullying can start to occur. But uh, yeah, the anonymity aspect is really just like focused on giving people the option that if they're, you know, someone talking about a problem for the first time, they can go and they can be anonymous, they can pixelate their video, um, and they can have an anonymous username and they can get something off their chest. They can put something out there and hopefully get some feedback. And then on the other end of it is, you know, if you want to go with clear video, that's really where leaders and professionals can come in and say, like, hey, I've been through this. Like, this is how I got through it. Or, like, say, hey, this is, like, a really great way of dealing with depression. So we want to kind of, like, get, create a space where people can collaborate and learn from each other. And so how it, how it works in the app when you go in, there are different groups that you can join. What yeah. kinds of, I mean, there are, what kinds of topics are people starting groups? Yeah, for? it's crazy. I mean, it's it, we started out with like kind of like beachhead groups, with like uh, depression and stress and anxiety and addiction and and really just went at more like from a general high level point of view. Um, but since we we launched in August, so it's it's fairly new. But uh, we we have a you know a few thousand users and uh, we've seen everything from PTSD and an LGBT group and. Uh, a high school group and a people of color group and you know so many different groups and all and so many different conversations happening and it's been I mean it's been like very overwhelming and very educational and just like amazing to see that people are actually using it for what we thought you know what we imagined it being used for so yeah I was going to ask like what kinds of responses have you had anyone directly reach out to you yet to say this is how high huddle has helped me yeah, uh, we we've been we have been lucky enough to, and we're starting to like ask and talk to our users more, and we make sure that anyone that signs up that we're we're you know talking to them from the beginning. But uh, I mean, yeah, we're, we're seeing people make connections, and we're starting to see people uh, actually like take it into a direct message platform and start to get to know each other personally. And you know, I mean, we have like you know the super active users, and then we have some people coming in that are like going through the path of just looking and seeing. Um, and then you know, as our job for if we're going to update the product pr correctly is you know how do we get them to the next level? So right now it's just you know Tyler and I and a community manager, and um, we're hiring more people. But uh, yeah, uh, it, it, we want to keep making product updates as quickly as we can. That's awesome. And this was a personal project, but you also just got some yeah. investment. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Which, congratulations. Uh, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a fucking weird world of uh, pitching to VCs. Um, as a creative, I, I, I mean, I, always, I think I always like fantasized about that world of like, oh, I want to get into the business side of things. But uh, standing in front of a room of a bunch of people judging you and uh, deciding whether to give you money and picking apart your product and your idea um, is daunting. But we were super lucky enough to, we got uh, a really great um, investor and then we have a lot of really awesome angel investors. So. Well, congratulations. It's, um, I'm sure it's anxiety inducing, but no one is, no one is as passionate about your app or your idea as you. Yeah. So you got to be the one to pitch it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Tyler and I got to pitch it. So it was really awesome. Yeah, great. Look, you've likely heard of MailChimp and there's a good reason why more than 15 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products and grow their e-commerce businesses every day. But here's something you might not know. You can run Facebook ad campaigns right from MailChimp. Use the same simple design tools they give you for email to create great-looking ads. 
You can target ads at your audience or people similar to them, which is a great way to reach new customers. Track sales, customers, and subscribers, all in one unified dashboard for both advertising and email. If you're looking to up your email game or try your hand at a Facebook ad campaign, MailChimp has the tools you need to grow your company in a way that feels right for you. We want to thank them for supporting the Great Discontent podcast. MailChimp, send better email, some more stuff. Our second guest is a senior product designer at Etsy and also co-founded and designed MyTrans Health and created the Let Trans Women Live campaign. Previously, she was art director at Amazon in Seattle and worked for Staples and New Balance in Boston. She has run a panel for the Obama administration, spoken at Design Week PDX on how designers need to show up, and written for publications like Bustle and Mike. Her work has been featured by The Verge, Business Insider, and Upworthy, and she has guest lectured at Cooper Union and School of Visual Arts. Please give a very warm welcome to Robin Canner. Hey, everyone. Welcome. I have met and hung out and conversed with you before. It's true. You know all my secrets, for real. That's not even a lie. You know most of mine. I know most of yours. Yeah. I feel like you held some back. Yeah, I do that. Because you do that. Yeah. I got your number. Um, (laughs) So so I'm excited to catch up with you um, and talk about your move from Seattle to New York. Um, Tell me a little bit about what led to that move and you deciding to take this role, this new role at Etsy? Well, uh, so I was in Seattle before and I got, uh, got really sad there. And like, I lived in five States in the last five years. So I was just really bad at settling down. So, um, grew up in Maine, then moved over to Boston, then Portland, Oregon, then Seattle, and then New York. Um, and the move from here to there was really just like this idea that like, I like left the East Coast because I was processing a bunch of things, and after I processed them, I kind of was just like, "Wait, what the fuck am I doing here? It's raining all the time." Um, and I was just, I just got sad, and I like found myself uh, like going home after work and like either watching a movie or playing guitar for like five hours, and then just going to sleep, which um, just didn't seem like the most exciting thing in the world. And I just felt like I had like more things to put in the world, so I wanted to come to New York and just start making stuff. So I came here. And did you did you randomly get connected with Etsy or? Uh, so I had given a talk there last November, like the week after the election, um, and it was funny because I had like planned to give this talk about my trans health, and it was just going to be like this like overview thing of like how I built it or whatever. Then the election happened, and I was like on a plane um, the next night to come to Brooklyn, and uh, my friend Tim was also like on a plane giving a talk too. So we both rewrote our talks while like being on the plane. Uh, and then I just wrote mine just to be like, we're fucked, let's talk about it. Uh, and it was a really good conversation. And um, then I left, I went back to Seattle and I got there and I was just like, this is not good. So I just sent them a note and uh, kind of took a red eye flight and I was just like, hey, I'm in New York, do you guys want to talk? And um, Carrie Campo, who is a, a senior manager over there was like, yeah, that sounds good. So then I joined Etsy. And now you're here. Yeah. Now we're I'm glad here. that you're here. Yeah. So I want to, you touched a little bit on, you know, you were in Maine and then moved to Portland. And so I want to um, ask you to, I know, I know your path to where you are now has been a circuitous, circuitous, circuitous like you have not been, you've been, it's been funky. Yeah. It's the, I can't, like, I know the path in my head because we talked about it, yeah, yeah. but yeah, will you give kind of like the cliff notes version of, yeah. is that possible? Is oh, there yeah. one? 
uh, from like starting yeah. the main. I mean, just tell us. I want to give context because so much of the work you do sure. injects your, you know, it's your personal totally. story. It's very yeah, personal, yeah. and so I want people to have context for the work that you're doing now. So totally, yeah. yeah. So um, I grew up in Maine. Went to a weird college in Western Maine, and um, just didn't like super gel with that state as a whole. And uh, by the time I got to a point where I really wanted to be a designer, um, I had just like gotten out of the music industry. You know, I was working at this nonprofit, and uh, I thought it'd be a really good idea to. Um, get into like the ad world. So I met with like this really cool ad agency in Maine, like the coolest one that offices like out of a library. It was like everything you think is cool in design at age like 21, they had it. Um, So I got like really nervous and I interviewed there and it was like going well. And then they kind of um, like weren't really stoked that I was trans. So I kind of left and I I sent this note to uh, Mike Montero who I didn't know at the time, but I just emailed him and I was like, hey, I'm screwed here. What do I do? And um, he just basically told me to leave, which was really the kind of advice that I needed to hear at the time. So then I went to Boston and uh, life got a little bit better, but um, I just like I was living in this apartment that like had cockroaches in it and I was like sleeping in this bedroom and uh, I had this job at Staples that I was designing at for like as a brand designer. But then my car broke down, so I like, was driving this car, like, illegally to, like, work and back. So then I went to New Balance uh, and was biking to work, which was really great. But then it was just a, like, contract thing for brand design. Um, and while I was there, like, the concept of my trans all started to come out. And uh, I just felt really weird in Boston. Just, like, wasn't really driving with it as a city as a whole. So I decided, no, I'm going to leave this place, too. Uh, so then I flew out to Portland, Oregon where I lived in this attic uh, in North Portland. It's a lovely attic. And I basically just like tried to figure out my life there. I was just like, why am I here? Uh, my trans health had had a lot of press, which kind of weirded me out in a lot of ways. And like being in this reclusive attic was nice for me. Um, so I hung out there. And uh, after four months and like a numerous amount of bad interviews, um, Amazon scooped me up. So then I went to Seattle. And then I got to live that bizarre life for a couple years. And then I came over to New York with y'all. See, it's winding. Yeah, And and that was, like, very high level. That was a great job. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well rehearsed. I feel like you practiced that. Um, So did you have an aha moment when you were like, I want to, I'm interested in design? Yeah. Um, I had a bunch of them. I think... I, like, the big moment was I was in uh, this art school in rural Maine, and I was making a bunch of, like, weird installation art about identity, and I kept wanting to tell people what to think, and my professors would always try to pull me back, and they'd be like, no, 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 you got to ask people what to think. And I'd be like, I don't really, no, I, I just want to tell them what to do here. Um, and that's when I realized I was a designer. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I don't have any follow-up questions to that. It's just crushed very clear. it. You crushed yeah, it. Thank you. Um, but I do want to talk about, so I want to talk about My Trans Health, sure. um, which aims to ensure that all trans and gender non-conforming people have access to quality and culturally competent service. Yeah. Did I nail that? No, that what? was beautiful. I've got notes. That was, that was great. So 
tell us a little bit about how MyTrans Health works. What, sure. what is it doing for people? Yeah, so it's just a site that's designed to help people get access to quality healthcare. It's a very simple experience where um, you head to the site and you see a bunch of bright colors and we ask you how you identify, where you live, and what kind of access that you need to. Um, and then we spit you out a bunch of providers in your area that we've actually all called on the telephone and talked to about how they um, talk to trans people and like the access that they have in their buildings and like the resources that they're doing and how much they're willing to defy our current government. Uh, basically all of those things. Um, and yeah, then you just, you're able to call right from the site and you can kind of get hooked up for it. So like basically the point was just like, um, I don't think it's like generally awesome to be trans. Like it's like not the most joyous moment of your life maybe. So like I kind of looked at it from like this perspective of like, if you have to do this thing that you maybe not want to do, like how can you do it in like the funnest way? So uh, the site doesn't like have any sad language on it. There's no red, there's no like gaudy, like, oh, it sucks to be trans. It's just like, oh no, you're trans. Cool. Well, <laughs> us too. Here's some shit. Uh, so that's kind of the deal. I love that you guys personally call and interrogate the health providers to make yeah. sure that, they're going to provide quality service. Yeah, it's a trust thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of like true of like all design, but like trusting with your audience or your customers or whatever is like kind of the biggest deal that you could um, possibly do within the experience. Um, and the only way that we could really build that trust is by doing that back-end work ourselves. Um, so yeah, it led to some really interesting conversations just because how people you know in Omaha talk about gender is vastly different than how people in New York City do, right? So uh, we had to have a bunch of like really interesting conversations with it, um, but like we trust it, like we know. So that's a really good feeling. Yeah, and your personal story of transitioning is also a part of this. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? How um, you know? I mean, that was a challenge for you was access sure. to health services and treatment. Yeah, no, I mean that was totally like part of the jam. Um, I th so I think gender is really boring now. <laughs> I think like gender is like cool for people, but sometimes we talked about it. I'm like, oh no, this is like super boring. Um, but yeah, so I'm trans, and uh, I just had a bad time with it, as most people do. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Then I tried to kill myself a few different times, which wasn't a good idea. Don't really suggest that. And then after that, I kind of got my shit together and. Um, just really kind of develop this like, fuck you, this is what it is attitude, um, which I've been able to carry luckily through, which has made life like pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what kinds of responses are you getting from My Trans Health? I know you got a lot of press around it. Yeah. Um, what kinds of responses are you getting from people who are using it? Sure. Do they reach out to you? and? Daily, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I definitely get emails every single day. Um, a lot of it's really good. It's really hard to do that back-end work of like talking with people and like building that database or whatever. So we get a lot of emails from people being like, hey, I'm in New Zealand and I really need access to a thing. Can you help us out? Um, and that's difficult because we're not in New Zealand. Um, a really good fun fact about MyTransAlth is besides the United States, the second most visited country or continent, I think it's a country, I don't know, it's Russia. Is that a continent or a country? I'm not a history person. You're saying it's the second most... Visited like, place. Like, United States than Russia. Your users are yeah, yeah, yeah. visiting from... Oh, right. wow. Yeah, weird, right? Well, Russia's huge, but... Yeah, well, I just, wow. like, love the idea of Vladimir Putin having a bunch of trans girls in that place. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, that's what the deal is. <laughs> um, 
Um, I that totally. I never get thrown off, but I'm yeah. just picturing. I've got a picture in my mind now. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what cities are you in currently? Yeah, so we're in six cities right now: New York City, um, L.A., San Francisco, um, Seattle, Boston, and Dallas, um, and Chicago too, actually. And we've been working on the second redesign, which will have 20 cities, none of which I can name off the top of my head. Um, but Evansville, Indiana is on there. Shout out to Mike Pence. <laughs> yeah, because we know. We did it for him. <laughs> um, awesome. So so both of you, um, well, I want to, you, Robin, you do a newsletter, and I want to quote something that you oh. wrote in your newsletter. Yeah. A lot of. There's a lot of research happening on these cue cards here. I can't wait for this. Um, I know. Are you going to be like, whoa, I wrote that. That was awesome. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to this. Um, But it it was when you were writing about how your love affair with traditional graphic design really shifted after My Trans Health. And it shifted to a, a love for user experience and information architecture because of the more direct impact that it could have on culture. So I do want to quote you. It's kind of a long quote, but it's really good. It's going to be worth it. So stick with me, guys. I'm ready. You too. Um, So you said, Robin said, I lived for traditional graphic design for so long. You know, picture making. I spent night after night flirting with typography, shape, color, and texture. I thought it mattered. The more time time went on, the more I saw how the self-importance of graphic design disillusioned its value. After My Trans Health came out, making pictures just seemed irrelevant. I put too much pressure on myself. I dove deep into information architecture and user experience, not because I loved it, but because I saw how much more impact on culture it could create. This was especially prevalent in West Coast tech, but now that I'm back on the East Coast, I see designers drooling over killed magazine covers, the color of a button, or a funky animation, and I sit there wondering, how? Not in a pretentious way, like in a pure and sincere way. I can totally imagine you saying that. So I want I want to ask both I want jo- I want Dan to jump back into the conversation and yeah. I want to ask you both about this because your projects both live in this space of like design for good design for social impact and they're really seeking to make a tangible difference in their users' lives. So um, how has creating these projects changed your thinking about the impact the design can have on us? Um, do, Robin, do you want to jump in first? I think I just got really high on design for a really long time, right? It was the skill that I learned, and it was, like, the thing that kind of saved my life, and I saw its value and impact. So um, I did as much as humanly possible for over a decade at this point. Like, consistently nights into the mornings, like, that's all I did. Um, And then when my trans health came out, I experienced, like, a whole different lens of that. Um, And when I would talk to press specifically, like, they just didn't care about visual design. They're like, how did you do it? It was all about the product. Mm. Um, And the more I had those conversations, the more I saw how much of an impact that could have um, and where, like, my voice mattered in a room. Um, So I think, like, a lot of times people talk about, like, you know, hashtag diversity in design, which is obviously super important. But um, diversity in product is, like, kind of my jam, too. Um, just because I see a lot of designers um, historically who do visual um, have a really difficult time like standing, like putting themselves at like a place at the table, really for the most part. Um, so when I got into like UX and IA, it was really great because I saw myself getting into these rooms that like I historically hadn't been able to get into. Um, and then when I saw the value of like the success metrics that most people like talked about within design, and whether this was at Amazon or you know wherever. Uh, 
it, it was all based in that. It was rarely based in visual identity. Um, and it kind of reiterated that with my trans health. So it was really weird just because I spent like basically eight years getting really good at visual design to be like, wait, why do I do visual design? Like what, what does that color really matter? Um, but then I see people get hyped on it and I kind of get jealous about it. Cause I'm just like, damn, like you're not burnt out from it. Or like you, like you're generally in love with this still. Um, so I get really envious about that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dan, what about you? Um, so you visual did a ton of visual design work and high huddle is a different facet of design for you. Yeah. Um, so how has, how has working on this kind of changed your perspective about the ability for design to impact its users? Uh, well, it meant something. I mean, I think that that's like kind of the biggest thing. I think the visual design and I mean, I, I love being a visual designer and a brand designer and, um, uh, I, I think ultimately it was like it was something that impacted me directly, and it was something that impacted my family directly, and it's something I fucking believed in. It's a, I think it's like the first time that um, I, I was doing something because it meant, like it could make a difference in someone's life. And I mean, not to put down anything else that I've done, but I think like doing you know brand overhauls for restaurants and doing you know st social identity work, it, it it only goes so far. Um, where I actually feel like it's it's doing something for someone. And I think, you know, to some of your points about just now at this stage, like it, at Tumblr, we always were learning about our community. At Ticktail, we're always learning about our community. Um, but this is like something that, like we're learning about our community and it's changing their lives. It's not about buying a garment or getting a tat, you know, making like a cool animated GIF that gets like showcased on a, on a head page. So I think like ultimately for me, it's like transitioning from brand to tech world and now like finding Huddle and creating Huddle, um, like I'm putting my life into it for the first time. I'm not, I don't have side gigs anymore. I'm not doing projects and trying to like impress other designers on the internet. Like I'm focused on just making something that hopefully can help people. Yeah, and how, so, so both of these projects for you are very personal. Um, how does it, how does it felt for you to make work that is so personal versus something that's for a client or something that, you know, you're working at an agency or in-house? How, how has that felt different? Yeah, um, I think like this time, I think in this case, it's actually, we, we cheated and we talked a few days ago and we kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, it's a, uh, it's a lot more emotional, actually. I mean, I think that we were specifically talking about the release, and um, I think one of the stories that Tyler and I always had for this product is like, you know, our personal stories. And uh, like my personal story of like seeing my dad struggle with addiction my whole life and ultimately pass away, and uh, him just essentially being a stubborn person and never wanting to talk about his problems, um, like sat with me for a long time. And I think. Once we launched, uh, that was like a story that was all of a sudden very public and very out there. And I was happy and so excited that our product is getting attention, but seeing like m a lot of like Harvard emotions and like personal stories being kind of thrown out on, you know, Business Insider and TechCrunch is like, it's nerve wracking. And like I'll, all I could, I've stressed to think like my family's going to look at this and fucking hate me and be so angry with me. Um, so it was, it's good, but I think like that emotion that I'm feeling, like I've never gotten that from anything I've released. I've never had that worry. I've never, cause I was being vulnerable. And I think like, that's what we want 
ultimately like that's what we want people to be on huddle and it's actually like it was really good to kind of go through those motions and i've never gone to that so yeah i mean we cheated and had this conversation and it was really good um but to echo like a couple of the points um being rewarded for like being miserable was like a new thing for me uh (laughs) imagine it'd be new for any of you uh so that was like one of the weirder things just because it was just like oh here's this thing that like i felt like shit about for a bunch of decades um and now everyone's talking about like how like wonderful i am right and they're kind of putting this identity on a pedestal um and i didn't understand the like value of a word at that moment um so i was literally like on lunch break at new balance uh and i would take a call from like business insider and they'd be like all right, tell me like why this product exists, right? And they would like do the runaround of like this is why it exists, this is who it helps, this is how it's designed, this is you know anything you want to know. Then like they'd be like, okay, thank you so much, and hang up the phone, and then call me back like ten minutes later. It was like I ran up by my editor. They love it. They need a personal story with it. And I was already, I didn't know like the value of those stories, right? So I was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, here's this one moment, right? Or here's this moment. And I just kind of like handed out all these things that happened in my life that I don't know if I at the time had processed um, for free. And it was just like, oh, here you go. Like this was like kind of a big deal in my life, but now it's just for everybody, um, which in theory is fine. But in practice, it was very strange just because I got like a bunch of notes after it afterwards. So it would be like, 3 a.m. and I would just be like reading these like notes from people who really attached to like this identity piece. Um, I didn't have any advice for them just because I was like only working through myself at the time. So that was the weirdest part about it. That's an interesting point. I didn't think about that um, because because you're you both have personal stories tied into the work. It's like when you launch that work, are you ready for the kind of like the emotional repercussions, right? Like being so vulnerable. Are you ready? Because people are going to want to, people love a story and they love vulnerability because we connect with that vulnerability when we see it in others because we want to be able to feel safe enough to be vulnerable. Um, but you don't think about, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm so excited to get this product out the door. But then emotionally, like, did you each have to take some time to kind of process? I mean, Dan, I know your app came out very recently, but w- was there a moment where you're like, oh, shit, I have some, like, things to process through here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I think, like, my partner can and my wife can probably, like, detest this the most. I, I definitely was worried and, like, uh, freaked out a little bit when the stories first came out. I mean, it's a part of my story. It's a part of my life. It's, like what uh i went through i think like for me it was just like i felt like i was betraying my family a little bit like i felt like i was doing something wrong but it felt so fucking good to get it out there like to actually start talking about it and now having a product next to it that's like this is the this is what i learned and this is the output of what i learned from my you know friends and my dad's diseases that they never took care of so i think like yeah definitely like i i i think i was super freaked out i had to like walk out and take a couple breathers when i first saw the articles come out and call like my closest siblings and be like hey this came out like don't be mad at me and i think like for the most part um most everyone was like super supportive um there's there's a part of my family that i've hid uh on Facebook um, from them seeing the articles. But I mean, it's like only a matter of time, you know, or they'll hear this and they'll be like, oh, I get it. There's context now, but um, yeah. So yeah, it was definitely a transition. Yeah, I think it took me a little bit to figure out to not um, 
consume everyone else. Like, especially when I would get like note after note about it. Like I was dealing with my own stuff, but, uh, I kind of knew that was going to happen eventually. Like my dad had died too. And like, it took me a really long time to even like think about like what that meant. Um, so when I started to get like a mass inflection of stuff, um, from people that like basically were me, I just like flipped my thing. Right. Um, it took me a while just to be like, oh, okay, this is their stuff and I'm going to take that in. Or if this is like somebody who's not trans, who's just trying to like pass off their guilt or like when I talk to me about Caitlyn Jenner or something like that, I could just be like, oh no, I'm good. I, I actually don't get anything out of this. Go fuck yourself. And I would just walk out. Um, so that took me a while to figure out like just what conversations mattered and which ones like were worth having. Um, it's protecting your time. Like the root of it is that's, that's really it. Yeah, I think protecting your time and yourself and knowing that if people have personal tr- reactions to your story that's triggering something in them, like it's not your job to sure. own their emotions and to help them process their emotions. I mean, yeah, totally. Go, and see, I, go see a therapist like everyone else in New York. or sure. you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's real. And I like learned all of that shit from black women. Like it was always black women who would talk to me and be like, hey, so this shit's about to happen. Here's how... There's some thoughts on, like, maybe you'd love, like, some stuff you can do about it. Um, and it totally, like, saved my head. So shout out to black women. Shout out. Uh, well, thank you both for opening up tonight about your personal stories. I think that there's, you know, vulnerability is so powerful. And when we open up and others can see themselves in our stories, like, that's amazing. And But it always takes the first person to say, hey, this happened to me or this is what I'm going through. And then someone else to respond and say, me too. And that moment of connection is so profound. Um, So I want to talk, I have just a couple more questions for you guys. I want to talk a little bit about, I want to shift gears and talk about the process of when you were um, doing this work. Because I think when you're working for a client or someone's paying you, um, you're obligated you have to show up and you have to do the work and hit the milestones, but um, it's easy to procrastinate when it's your own project. Um, so I want to, there was a book I read um, years ago called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which has been passed around, you know, the creative community and recommended a lot. And it was really helpful for me. It kind of kicked my ass and made me stop procrastinating and get to work. So I just want to read this short quote uh, and then ask you guys a follow-up question. Um, so Stephen Pressfield says that um, procrastination can become a habit. We don't just put off our lives today. We put them off till our deathbed. Never forget this very moment we can change our lives. There never was a moment and never will be when we are without the power to alter our destiny. The second we can turn the tables on resistance. This second we can, take, we can turn the tables on resistance. This second we can sit down and do our work. And I think that's just about, you know, like you, you're like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it later. Um, and I procrastinate work where I do other work that I shouldn't. Like, it's like I feel like, oh, instead of sitting down and do the work, I'll just clean the house. And that's still work. So it feels like I'm accomplishing something, but I'm not accomplishing the thing I should be working on. So um, I want to ask each of you before you, you started, did you experience resistance, maybe in the form of you know procrastinating or maybe not feeling qualified or maybe being afraid that you couldn't do it? And how did you move past that resistance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> every day I still question what the, if I'm qualified to be doing what I'm doing. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's ebbs and flows. I think procrastination is a huge thing. I think um, especially right now, I, I think for Tyler and I thinking about how 
like what is the best thing that we should be doing and i think in my scenario and what with what we're dealing with right now is like you know everyone can talk about instagram's growth or talk about facebook's growth and make this generic model you know saying like you guys need to be doing this and this and you need to be you know doing acquisition this way and i think like every day for tyler and i we're thinking about now all of a sudden like we're not just thinking about design and development you know now we're thinking about like we're the only two in our in our first hire we're thinking about everything from acquisition to retention to marketing to social and i think it's uh i think procrastination comes in a weird way with that where you have so many different things on your plate and it's kind of like what what you were just saying it's like you work on you it's hard to focus on one thing at a time um, because you're, you, if you're focusing on one thing and you see numbers going another way, you're like, fuck, I should have been conf- concentrating on that. Um, so yeah, it definitely, like I, <laughs> I, that quote very much resonates, um, with, with what we're dealing with right now at this point. That is a really good quote. It is. Yeah. yeah. You should read the book. It's, it's yeah. quite brief. It's a brief read. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I think, uh, so I think about legacy a lot. It's like kind of my jam. Um, and it's because like the thought of like what my work means and like how it changes the world and like what legacy it leaves. It's like a super pretentious way to approach design, but it's also incredibly impactful over time to have it in the back of your head. Um, because eventually like we're all going to be dead and like people are going to be talking about what design looked like in 2017. Um, and I think like it would be really good if there was a better answer than like, I think the answer that we are going to come down to. Um, so for me, when I think about legacy, it, like the secondary piece is priority. Um, so it kind of helped me to like dwindle down what mattered when I started to think of it in that context, um, which is really good. Like, okay, so uh, by noise here, uh, how many people are a designer here? Like, just make a bunch of noise. Cool. How many of y'all saw the Dropbox redesign today? How many of you called your senators about gun control today? Priorities are really fucking important. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah. What advice, so aside from just sitting down and doing the work and then priorities, which you just made an excellent point on, what advice would you give to someone who is starting out on a project and is feeling resistance? Uh... Feeling resistance in what regard? Um, maybe they're just like, they're having a hard time getting started. They have an idea. Maybe they don't know why they're feeling resistance. They're oh, just like, yeah, yeah. I want to do this thing. Yeah, I mean, like, not to pull it back super hard, but it really is like, you only get X amount of time in this life. Like, that's it. And then we all die. So, like, at one point, you're going to have to decide, like, what do you want that work to look like? So, if that doesn't get you over the hump of making things, like, I don't know what's going to do it. Because uh, that's, that's the thing, right? Like, that's why we do any of this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah preach. Dan, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, yeah, you can't really argue with that. But I, I, I'm, uh, yeah, it's the same thing. I think like, there's, there's so many people that make up so many excuses, and I'm the same. Like, I've gone through, you know, uh, periods of my life where I've made up every excuse not to do the work that I have to do. Um, but I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. It's like, 
I've had so many students in the past or like young designers, they'll write me and be like, well, how the hell did you get all this work? Like how did, or like, you're so lucky that you got these clients. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm like, I wrote these people. I got these clients. I did this. Like, it's not like I had like a dream. Like I had something I wanted to do and I'm, and I did it. And um, yeah, I think it's easy to like make up excuses as to like why you didn't like, why you're not doing what you should be doing. So I just say like, I guess buck up and do it. I don't I really don't have anything super inspirational. Yeah. No, but I think that's the point is like there's no there's no magic. Like you're never there's never going to be a time where you say, "Oh, I have all the time that I need. I have all the money I need. I have all of the human resources that I need. I feel so qualified." Yeah. Uh, you know, like you're never going to sit down and say those things. If you wait for those things to happen, you're just never going to do the thing that you want to do. For sure. So you have to just push those all off the table and sit down and get to work. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask both of you, you know, Dan, as High Huddle continues to grow and Robin, as my, as my trans health expands into other cities, um, I'm just curious to know, like, what are your goals for each? Um, like, like, how do you hope to continue to build trust with your users? How do you see each of your spaces growing in the coming months and years? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say with like regards to my trans health, it's really about scale. Um, we so we designed the first iteration uh and um it was like a grueling process to first mvp right you don't know like what's really in your user stories if you're just three people um so it took us like a lot of like hitting walls to figure out what mattered in the design process um and uh since doing that we have been able to scale back dramatically and figure out a way to scale it forward a lot more effectively um so that's been kind of on the roadmap for like our plan um and then after that it's really like the trust is there like the I mean, for as much as I kind of rip on brand, like it is really important and like my trans health brand is like strong and it was something that we spent like a few months on. Um, so that stuff was really critical and it still is to this day. So uh, I think as long as we're like integral into the community and we're still talking with people about this stuff, um, we should have like trust built up with people. And um, luckily trans people have histories of talking about everything in back channels that like, like, Peach is lit. I, I know everybody deleted Peach, but, like, I love Peach, and uh, I love how, like, so many, like, trans people and gender non-conforming people have built subcultures in Peach, um, and, like, every other social network you've already forgotten about, um, they're everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I, I search all that stuff to find out what's working and what's not working. So that's kind of how I build stuff, too. Awesome. And Dan, what about you? Yeah, I mean that was an amazing shout out for Peach. I haven't heard like <laughs> I haven't heard anyone talk about Peach, I love Peach. since it launched and it's mind boggling that there's this sub community. And I think uh like kind of playing off that, I mean I you know, we want to continue to build our community and we want to make sure that the the right communities are starting. I think um making sure you know, there's so many different types of people coming into Huddle right now. Uh we want to make sure that we're just connecting them with the right group of people as fast as we can and I mean, you know, long story short, like we're just going to keep cranking on the product. I mean, we're product makers first and we're just going to keep updating the product based on what we're learning. So we have like a nice little buffer zone of time where that's where what we get to focus on um, and that's what we're going to focus on. And I think like the brand for Huddle is is massively important and I think it's like 
I'm sure to uh, to my partner's annoyance, like I'm a brand designer first and foremost, so I'm constantly like, what is our rhetoric? Who are we? What like what do we what do we fucking stand for? And um, my I mean my ultimate goal is like when you talk to I I know everyone's been there. It's like you talk to your friends about the massive from like a relationship issue or stress and anxiety or whatever it might be. Like there isn't a brand right now on the internet where someone says, well, why don't you go talk to someone on this? It's like, why don't you go find a therapist? Why don't you go find some help? Why don't you talk to someone? But it's like, there isn't a brand right now that lives socially on the internet that is safe and secure that you can be like, just go fucking talk, like talk about it on huddle and see if you can connect with someone that's been there. And I think like, that's, that's my goal. I mean, that's our goal with this. It's like, we want it. It's super aspirational and it, we, it's going to be hard to get there, but that's what we, we want to be that like, you know, that sentence mark. That's awesome. Okay. Last question. So you're both doing work to spark dialogue around issues that are important to you. And I know, and also I want to say, I know you guys, you, you both do other kinds, like you both do a lot of different work and I, you both do too much work for me to, to talk about it all tonight. That's why I'm focusing on these, um, particular projects and also this is kind of the overlap that you're working in the same space with these projects um so you know dan you're creating a safe space for people to talk honestly about mental health issues um robin you are building a service to help the trans community access healthcare that meets their needs um quality healthcare that meets their needs and so what do each of you want the world to know about these issues that are so important to you and these communities that you're trying to serve you want to take the first one? Sure. It gives uh, me time to think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I've, I feel like I've kind of talked about it. I mean, I think that I can just like kind of regurgitating the the pitch. I feel like I've been throwing at you guys is like, <laughs> internet's super fucking negative. And I mean, my internet growing up, I met some of my best friends. I met like people that I could, that when I was going through like issues and felt isolated, alone growing up. I had, I was a nerd, like I had LAN parties and I had, you know, IRC and I had all these weird channels of people that I got to meet and I would just spill my life and my problems to these people and I only got positivity back. And growing up for me, my internet experience was positive and I think the internet is so fucking terrible right now. Twitter is stress. Facebook is stress. Instagram is FOMO and ego bullshit. Like it's just, it's gotten to a, like it's gotten to like a height where it's like you can't go anywhere without it being a facade or negativity. And I know that there's going to be a lot of hard issues on our platform. And I know there's going to be a lot of like people going through some very, very real shit. Um, and it's going to be a hard challenge. But if we can create a platform that is safe, is mission driven, and we're, focused on creating that. Um, I really hope that we, we create that like little light in this fucking dark and gloomy internet that I feel like that we're exposed to on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> this is the moment you all have been waiting for. Uh, so I would say that um, things are dark, right? And I think designers have a responsibility to make them less stark. Uh, so, if, like a couple of months ago or whatever, I, I love how Randy just leaned in while I did this. This is a really, a really great moment. Uh, so, a couple of months ago, I was like walking home, right? And I noticed that like this guy was kind of like silently sweeping his sidewalk uh, in like bedside. 
And uh, it really got me thinking about how, like, anybody does that on the internet at all, right? Like, communities in and of itself have, like, rules, like, in real-life communities. Like, they're able to really, like, make sure that people are checking in on each other. They're really able to, like, help figure out that, like, you know, a community needs a different type of thing than maybe a network does. But if I talk to every designer in the world, they'll talk to me about how they work on networks, right? Medoc communities. Um, so as we build spaces like MyTransHealth and iHuddle, and then as, like, you know, we look at the major tech places like Twitter and Facebook, like what's the state of our sidewalks, right? Like who's sweeping them? Who's taking care of them at all? Um, and I don't think really anybody is. And basically everybody that I talk to who's a designer skirts the responsibility for it. But that is like the most impactful thing that we could possibly be doing right now. Because um, if we don't put those rules in place, we're like we're fucking ourselves here. Um, and for like a group of people who are so self-important about the impact of design, it is like remarkable to me how unwilling people are to sweep their sidewalk. It's my thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I, not to be like a, a, I guess like a nerd here, but uh, I think that there's like a lot of fundamental problems with just like how companies um, are gauging success right now. I think like especially for our social platforms and like you're talking about essentially like sweeping a sidewalk is like getting rid of bullshit content and we're seeing Facebook starting to take ownership of like negative and fake content on their platform and they're doing that for a social cause and they're getting like a lot of PR out of it and it's making Mark look really great but I mean if you're looking at most social companies right now like if you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook and you look at Snap and Instagram all they care about is growth. All they care about are numbers and that they're getting a percentage over a percentage every fucking month. And that creates these worlds that we're talking about because you have a company that fundamentally is trying to make money and trying to impress investors and all they care about is growth. And then you're dealing with real issues and you're dealing with real talk and conversations. Like you can't gauge data that way. Like you can't look at success as just growth. You have to look at impact and relationships and meaningful shit that happens in real life. Right. I mean, that's my, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> that's the deal. Up. I, it's just, uh, design is such a powerful profession for as, um, for as much as it's talked about, right. It's, uh, it's one of the biggest things and it's, um, it's frightening how much, impact this work can create and how little willing designers can be to take control of that um, because that is the work that needs to be happening because um, years from now I don't think people are going to be talking about whether Dropbox like took a different color right like it's going to be talking about like this safety online in 2017 um, and if you know designers want to build platforms that's amazing I love platforms I love the internet um, I love it so much that I want us to take care of it because it's the people who listen to this and are in the room that take care of it that's good okay I have, I have one last last question it's like a it's like a a and B. Um, so this is the question B, and it's really general. But what do you want to see more of in the world? It can be the digital world, the real world, both. Uh, I think I, respect for other people. Uh, I mean, I think like we're we're talking about it, and I think uh, just respect for what pe how people decide to live. I don't think it's anyone's business to be negative, and I think we all. I don't want to say love, but like we need to just respect each other and give each other the space and let them do what they want to do. And it's not your place to judge. So I just say respect. And Robin? I'd really like another Wu-Tang album. <laughs> uh, 
I'm supposed to say something more impactful than that. Um, no, we can end it there. Cool. I would also really love a new uh, Not A Surf record, um, a new Rilo Kylie record, and uh, a new, like if there's any music from Jeff Buckley still in the vault, if that could get released too, that would be really great. Thanks. <laughs> True. All right. Dan and Robin, everyone. This episode was produced by The Great Discontent and me, Benjamin Welch. The Great Discontent features in-depth conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk-takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. And of course, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.